Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com/csb1. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com/csb1. Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. So between 1960 and 2015, the average man and woman got about an inch taller each. But the real growth for Americans, and this is probably no surprise, was in their waistlines. The average man in 1960 weighed 166 pounds. Now he weighs 195 pounds. In 1960, the average woman weighed 140 pounds. She's now gained 25 pounds, weighs about 165 pounds. There's been decades of research about obesity and what causes it and how you try to deal with it. And some of that has been disseminated out through the press, but a lot of it has been locked in medical journals and in schools of nutrition. So we've brought together two of the country's experts on obesity, Dr. Dariush Mosafarian, a cardiologist and dean of the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy, and Dr. Bruce Lee, director of the Global Obesity Prevention Center at Johns Hopkins. Mosafarian makes an argument that I had not heard before, that somewhere around 1985, there was a seismic shift and people started gaining weight. Before that, before 1985, obesity wasn't a big problem. And then starting right around then, everything changed. I asked him if he knows what happened or if it's still a mystery. Well, so both. So I think that there's a lot left to learn to be really precise about the answer, but I think we have some pretty good ideas. And, you know, I think the trillion dollar question is, uh, you know, were there a thousand things that all changed simultaneously or is there just a few big things? Because if it's just a few big things, then if we can figure out what those are and change them back, that could have an enormous impact. And I think the breadth of the obesity epidemic across ages and races and socioeconomic class and its global reach across countries suggests that it's probably just a few big things. And, you know, one of the eternal debates is, you know, is it more physical activity or more diet? And I think in the United States anyway, there's there's pretty good evidence that it's mostly diet. I think, mm. you know, physical activity in many ways has gone up in the United States. There's more people going to gyms and more people uh, we're running marathons and, and many, many people exercising than ever before. There's also a lot of sedentary people. Uh, and we've also lost exercise and work and other ways. So I think net, it's probably a, a wash for physical activity. But our, our foods have clearly changed. And I think that the big things that have changed is a lot more starch and sugar in our food, refined carbohydrates, rapidly digestible, a lot more liquid calories, in particular from soda and alcohol. Um, a lot more TV watching, which interestingly seems to influence diet more than physical activity. So people who watch more TV eat differently and eat more. Huh. Uh, sleep has gone down. That's incredibly important. Um, a lot more meals out of the home and larger portion sizes accompanying that. And then I think there's things we don't understand that, that we still need to figure out. And probably for me, the two biggest are our gut bacteria, how those have changed during this epidemic. Um, and also probably partially related to that, how this uh, epidemic goes from generation to generation. How does the mother's womb influence the baby's risk of obesity? I think there's evidence that's growing that there's transgenerational effects. 
So, Dr. Lee, let me throw that question to you about what changed, you know, what precipitated the situation that we have now in which uh, most people are at least overweight, if not obese. Because before the 1980s, people ate not so great foods. People ate Wonder Bread. Uh, people ate Twinkies. And also the notion of not getting physical activity in your job, that, that's not new either. I mean, people commuted to work in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. You could even argue in some sense that we're more aware that maybe we eat more healthfully now than we did uh, 40, 50 years ago. It is true that uh, so it's not an absolute break point. It's not as if the 80s suddenly one day someone said, okay, let's change everything, Mm -hmm. certainly. But there were trends that were leading up to the 80s, and then you really saw things almost congeal and and, and, and change a little more dramatically. Of course, remember, it, it takes time for a lot of effects to accumulate. So when you see obesity increasing in a certain age group, especially if it's a uh, well, including children, but also uh, adults, then you're talking about effects that took hold before that huh, because yeah. uh, there's that lag time. And right. there's also that lag time in terms of recognizing. So when we talk about the 80s, we, we're talking about a period where we're starting to recognize based on the record keeping or the data gathering that we have because because a lot of our information is based on samples, of course. So right. we aren't seeing exactly what's happening with the entire population. It could very well be that... Um, the obesity problem was creeping up prior to that, and certainly the effects or the uh, forces probably were in place before that right, time. Right. Um, but you didn't see it on an eight-year-old because the eight-year-old exactly. was exercising and the Wonder Bread didn't really take effect immediately or whatever. Exactly. And as I, with, with everything, you start adding effects here and there, but at some point you hit an inflection point where things start uh, multiplying each other. Mm-hmm. There's there's synergies, and it's almost like a threshold. So if, say, you have a few personal habits that aren't great habits, but as long as you do it in moderation, everything's okay. But at some point, if you do all those long enough and in combination enough, you start seeing the effects on your life. So you've argued that part of the reason that we're overweight is we live in these systems, and they're interconnected, and they encourage us to be overweight, um, or at least they contribute to the fact that we're overweight. But if you're part of a multifaceted, integrated system, what do you do? I mean, do you have to rethink your whole workplace and and how it operates, and do you have to rethink what your family does, and, and, you know, on and on? Well, I guess this pushes for two things. So one is that we really need to start addressing this at a policy level. So we, we, we shouldn't keep thinking of the individual and say, okay, they're going to take care of it. There needs to be more action from all the different sectors of society, uh, ranging from governments to industry, to say, okay, we need to be serious about this. We need to be more serious about this as we would approach other types of epidemics. So, for instance, if there is a massive infectious disease epidemic or the smallpox uh, years ago, there was organized action to address uh, the issue and try to find solutions. So that's number one. So the individual is not solely to blame. The individual, there's only so much that the individual can do. Secondly, the individual person can look at some of these things and say, okay, how do I improve? You know, do I enlist the aid of my my friends and say, okay, look, I want to lose weight. I want to improve my uh, diet. Uh, rather than this being an isolated thing, you need to include the people around you. Try to find ways where you can help each other. You know, form sort of support groups where you say, "Okay, you know, this is my target weight loss goal. This is how I want to improve my diet. Can we all do this together?" Mm-hmm. 
or engage in discussions at the workplace and say, okay, what can we do to improve the healthiness of our workplace and improve the environment of our workplace? Uh, employers can be open to that because they realize that this affects their bottom line. If their employees are sick or not feeling well or less productive, this affects the business bottom line. Dr. Mozafarian, when you look at 30 years of research on how to deal with the obesity epidemic, when you think about, okay, what would you suggest? I mean, you know, uh, Dr. Lee is really saying this, in, to some degree, this is should be dealt with at a policy level, at a government level. To you, is that where things need to be dealt with? Like, what are the best tools you've seen to combat obesity? Well, so, you know, I, I agree with a lot of what's been discussed. I mean, one thing that we haven't talked about is understanding what actually the definition of healthy food is, because mm -hmm. w that term has been, you know, we use that term yeah. a lot, but yeah. but one thing that, that has changed dramatically is our understanding of that science. So in the 1980s and 1990s, this was a brand new science, and people don't really realize how, how new the science was. And most of the focus at that time to reduce uh, obesity was on lowering total fat. Right. And, right. and, that and was you got low-fat everything, low-fat sour cream, low-fat cake, low-fat right. low yeah. everything. A after, you know, oh, I think maybe almost 100 years of Oreos being the number one selling cookie in America, Snackwell's, this, you know, fat-free, low-fat yeah, cookie yeah. that was all starch and sugar became the number one selling cookie overnight, right? That's just one example. So, so you know, that low-fat focus was based on kind of the theory, well, there's more calories per gram of, in fat than protein or you know, carbohydrates, so it must cause weight gain. And that we've learned that's totally uh, incorrect and that the fat content of a food has really no predictive power whatsoever. There's foods that are rich in fat that don't cause weight gain. There's foods that are fat-free that cause weight gain and, hmm. and vice versa. So that was something that took a while for, for us to figure out on the science side. Now I fear that calories has replaced fat as the same oversimplification. And so I still think we're, we're not quite there in terms of the focus. The conventional wisdom now is it's all about counting calories so that if you count your calories and you know, watch your portion sizes, that's what's most important. And I, I think that's that's false. I mean, I mean, really. For short, so a thousand calories, even if even if you're eating junk and it's like a thousand calories of Milky Ways a day, that's right. not going to help you. I mean, well, so for short term, right? If you want to lose weight over three months or four months, of course, you know, you cut your calories, you'll lose weight. But mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, your our bodies have a beautiful and and intricate and powerful. A set of mechanisms to help us regulate our weight. So if you do that, you know, you're, if you cut your calories, your metabolic rate slows, um, your temperature might even go down, you have less energy, your brain starts to, to switch on to want more uh, food. There's all sorts of things to, to maintain our weight. So at the end of the day, we're, what we're starting to understand now in the science is that there's certain foods that help those beautiful mechanisms and help us maintain our weight. And there's certain types of foods that don't. And so again, short term, you could go on any diet you want. Paleo, Atkins, low fat, high fat, gummy bear, Milky Way. <laughs> you, could, you could go on any of those and you'll lose weight short term, right? But, but long term, you won't be successful. And there's lots of examples of this calorie focus dominating policy. So in school lunch programs nationwide, um, whole milk is banned. But fat-free chocolate milk, sugared chocolate milk is allowed because it has less calories. E even though from all the science and mechanisms that we know, whole fat dairy should be better for long-term weight control than chocolate skim milk. As just, as just one example. Now, hold a minute. If everything we know says 
don't drink chocolate skim milk. That's not good for kids. Why are they serving it in cafeterias for school lunches? Why has that science not filtered in? Well, what I'm describing to you is controversial. I mean, I think okay. the scientists that, that I have talked to and, and my own research and, and, you know, I think people on the cutting edge are starting to realize that it's not about calories, that a thousand calories of healthy food is better for you and better for long-term weight control than 800 calories of, of less healthy food. Uh -huh. And and there's, you know, you, you can have obvious examples of that, like a serving of nuts has more calories than a serving of, of soda. Uh -huh. But there's subtle examples of that, baked potato chips or fat-free salad dressing or all kinds of things that people say, well, they have lower calories, so they're probably better for me than the other version, you know, when, when all you're doing is taking out, in the, those cases, healthy fats. We're just starting to understand that. And I think that is going to be a, an incredibly powerful weapon because because for 30 years, you know, we've been telling people to first lower fat and then now to count calories. And that doesn't work. And it, I think it does work if you switch to healthier foods and actually stop worrying about uh, calories. Dr. Lee, almost like clockwork, for 30 years, every state has reported more obesity every few years. I wonder, are things going to get better? Are they going to get worse? Uh, where do you see the trend lines going? Well, I think the challenge is that we see data from year to year, and we have to keep in mind those are samples. So globally, we're seeing more and more obesity. It's extending. Uh, we see many countries, including low- and middle-income countries, where obesity has become a problem where it wasn't a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, one, one statistic that's frequently cited is that the number of deaths associated with uh, obesity and overweight has surpassed uh, undernutrition. In other words, uh, yeah. in many of these low- and middle-income countries, it used to be that lack of food, lack of nutrition, and being underweight was the biggest risk of death and biggest cause of death, but that's actually been surpassed. So I think the evidence is there that globally we're continuing to see an increase. Within the United States, there's been some debate over whether there's been some relative plateauing, but I think the trends are still uh, showing an increase in weight. Uh, and we have to remember it's not just obesity. There's also overweight. In mm -hmm. other words, you're not right. necessarily obese, but you're, you're above your recommended body weight. So all of that is not positive and suggests that um, while there's been attempts to address the problem, the problem will continue. So I think unless we really dramatically change the conversation, dramatically shift the focus, we really need to make people aware that this is an urgent problem. This is like a, a safety problem, for right, instance, right. or a situation where people are actually dying, getting sick, and there needs to be more urgency. If you, if you pull people on the street and ask them, okay, what's the problem with obesity? Many people will say, oh yeah, it's people can't control their, their habits. Uh, people can't control their lifestyles. They need to get better self-control or they're blaming a number of different things. And that's really missing the point. Hmm. So the point is that we really need to address this together as a national emergency. Uh, Dr. Mozafarian, a last question for you. So we talk about changing behavior and uh, changing whole systems and, and people changing what they eat. But not that long ago, there was a study done uh, on people who had been on the show The Biggest Loser. And it got a lot of attention. And you essentially had all these people who had lost weight on the show. They had healthier habits. And almost to the person, they had regained the weight that they had lost. And part of the reason was that their metabolism had plummeted. So it was very hard for them not to regain the weight because they were not burning as many calories as they once had. Do you worry 
that even as people try to adopt new diets to to make healthier changes, that the body hits you with a backlash and says, you know, oh, no, not so fast. Uh, Yes. So, you know, there's lots of evidence that once a person is obese, losing weight quickly, dramatically, like on the television shows, is not sustainable. So... So two key lessons from that that, you know, we, we could have told you without watching the show from, from, <laughs> from the science. Two, two key lessons. First, we have to prevent weight gain in the first place. The, the best way we're going to get around this problem is to take the entire population and prevent weight gain because it's really about a pound a year on average in the average adult. So very, very gradual weight gain. Mm. It's, it's, it's not just about treating obesity once it's happened, but preventing the weight gain. So that's the first lesson. And the second lesson is for people who are obese who want to lose weight, um, it should be about slow, gradual, sustained weight loss. That's not exciting to them, but that's really the solution. You know, a pound a month, two pounds a month um, is a very reasonable goal for an obese person. Um, even not gaining more weight is a very reasonable goal for an obese person. So, you know, the, the problem with those shows, again, is they're focused on calories. They're often focused on fat. Um, they're focused on radical r- reductions in calories. And those things are, are challenging. But science is, has shown very clearly now in, in randomized trials that if when obese people lose weight, their metabolic rate goes down substantially. But the type of food they eat alters that. And so if they go on a low-fat diet their metabolic rate drops the most. Um, And if they go on a a diet that's high in fats, high in healthy fats and low in carbohydrate, their metabolic rate drops the least, almost not Mm. at all. Um, Interesting. And so, you know, those trials so far have been short-term, but if you combine it with long-term observational studies, it really suggests that, you know, long-term, the best success for both preventing weight gain and for losing weight is to eat a healthy diet and not worry so much about calories. And so I mentioned before, how do you define a healthy diet? You know, rich in minimally processed whole foods, um, fruits, vegetables, beans, uh, nuts. Um, Yogurt should be in, in that list because of its probiotics and effects on the microbiome. Uh, fish should be on that list uh, because because it's healthy. Plenty of healthy vegetable oils, extra virgin olive oil, soybean oil, canola oil, all of those are good choices. Vegetable oil spreads are all great choices. And then the biggest thing to avoid, the single biggest thing is, is you know, sugary beverages, uh, starch and sugar in foods. If, if you just cut out starch and, and sugar, not all carbs, not low carb, but, but starch and sugar, you know, if you do that, you, you are 90% of the way there. Um, so I think that's you know, why that those TV shows that focus on, you know, dramatic weight loss and huge calorie reductions um, are, are not successful. Dr. Dariush Mosafarian is dean of the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy, and Dr. Bruce Lee is director of the Global Obesity Prevention Center at Johns Hopkins. Thanks so much to both of you for this great conversation. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Thank you. got a lot more about the rise of obesity on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. And we've got maps there of the incredible shift in state by state rates of obesity since 1985. From PRI and WGBH radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org.
55 years ago, a man bought a business. It wasn't his business, he hadn't started it, but the buyout was probably the most important move in a trend that was changing the world. The man's name was Ray Kroc. And the story of Kroc's takeover of a hamburger joint from a couple of brothers who he didn't think were all that motivated is the subject of a new movie, The Founder. I know what you're thinking. How the heck does a 52-year-old, over-the-hill, milkshake machine salesman build a fast food empire with 1,600 restaurants and an annual revenue of $700 million? One word, persistence. But McDonald's definitely was not the beginning of fast food. Way back in 1900, the Industrial Revolution was driving more and more people to eat outside their homes and to get something quick. New sandwiches began to appear called hamburger sandwiches. Cafeterias were selling fast food and automats and then drive-ins. Fast food has changed how we live, how our cities look. A lot of people would argue it's changed how we look. Andrew Smith is a professor at the New School and the author of the book Fast Food, The Good, The Bad, and The Hungry. He says that McDonald's was a pioneer in many ways, but they were not the first to realize that technology and food could be combined on a large scale. That honor belongs to a Kansas burger chain called White Castle. Their goal was to create the equivalent of uh, a Ford assembly line. They became very efficient. They opened stores in areas where businesses had 24-hour activity, and so therefore they would get the night night group coming by to have lunch there and things of that mm. sort. So the problem is America changed a lot during World War Two when uh, meat was rationed and they couldn't didn't have the hamburger that they used to have. And then after the after the war, you had large number of suburbs opening up, and so White Castle really deteriorated. So it's McDonald's that comes along and and says, we have a much more efficient system than White Castle did, uh, and indeed they did. And that was one of the things that really attracted Ray Kroc to it. He, he literally was in Chicago, took a plane out to San Bernardino, California, took one look at what they were doing, and literally there were thousands of people lining up. They were served quickly and uh, inexpensively, and uh, it was a tremendous success story from his standpoint. And so he made a deal within 24 hours of meeting the McDonald brothers that he would handle franchising, right. <laughs> which which meant that McDonald's, which um, probably would never have made it out of Southern California and would have would have remained a very small chain, becomes a national chain. So it's Ray Kroc's knowledge of franchising that makes a difference. The difference between McDonald's and White Castle is White Castle never franchises. They, they only had uh, store operations. And so when Ray Kroc begins to franchise, it expands quickly throughout the country, and it becomes the model for every other fast food operation. Was it just that Ray Kroc was some sort of genius entrepreneur? Or was it that this new model of franchising was brilliant and perfectly suited to the time? Because Boy, did McDonald's explode. It was the right time, the right place, and the right man. He, he had been extremely knowledgeable about franchising and experiences in his previous um, employments, so he was knowledgeable about that. Then suburbs began to open up around America mm -hmm. after World War II, and suburbs, the, the main characteristic was there's no grocery stores, there's no diners, and there's no restaurants. And so he would fly over cities and look, see where they, they were building the suburbs, and says, that's where we're going to build a McDonald's. So he was <laughs> just extremely wise to what was happening in America and uh, because the suburbs were the 
families that moved into them were they had children and the, and the, and the children needed to eat and in many cases the families had two parents working um, and so consequently the the idea of a fast food operation in a suburb was the perfect idea at the right time and so for at least 20 years he was the only real restaurateur that moved into the suburbs, wow. and he did a successful and tremendous job at it. Wow. Do you see uh, any sort of divide emerging between the kinds of restaurants people eat at? I mean, I, I feel like uh, the original McDonald's were very solidly, as you said, they were very solidly middle-class places. They were out in the suburbs. And now I'm not sure if you know, middle class or upper, upper middle class folks are choosing to eat more at Chipotle or, you know, are they making different kinds of fast food choices? Is there a, a class divide or not necessarily? Yes. there. I mean, there's now the new category of, of casual fast food. <laughs> so um, that's the Chipotle and that's the Panera Bread and that's mm. the other, the, the upper class of the fast food movement. Um, so, uh, but it's still fast food. I mean, it's still, it's still uh, the, 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 the performance is exactly the same. The price is a little higher and typically the quality of the food is a little better. So if you have a little extra money, why not go to a Chipotle or to Panera Bread or, or one of the other uh, fast casual uh, dining experiences, but it's still fast food. It means you're not doing the preparation, you're not cleaning up, um, and you're not tipping anybody. But does that mean like McDonald's thinks about their audience differently than they used to? Thinks about who their typical profile of a customer is differently? Every fast food operation constantly thinks about who their customers are, and their customers have changed. So there's lots of evidence, for instance, that indicates there are many more fast food restaurants in uh, poor areas of cities, for instance, than there are in upper-class areas. Uh, and some of that's zoning, uh, and, and some of that is uh, simply uh, where you made your money. So so people are tar- minority groups are targeted by fast food establishments because they're the ones that don't have a lot of money, and they're the ones that uh, typically are working a lot, and they will and they don't have a lot of time to do all the things that many of the rest of us um, middle class uh, have the ability to do. So we've been hearing for years, of course, about um, issues of health and fast food. And obviously, we're looking at growing numbers of people not just here, but all around the world who are obese, who are overweight. How do you think this issue um, is thought about inside the fast food industry? They're worried, and and they should be, and and so many of them are trying to think through new solutions and and how they can change their operations so that they can at least appear to be more healthy. Uh, so they're now offering salads. Uh, now, not a lot of people order them, but um, they at least have them on the menu and they can point to them. Uh, and other a number of companies have made some changes. Uh, McDonald's no longer has supersized uh, sodas, for instance, and um, they no longer have as the as soda as the default for the kids' meals that they have. And so they've tried to make decisions that they could within their current framework. But I think all of them are now trying to re-examine what can they do to make it healthier? How can they reduce the amount of salt in their uh, foods that they serve? How can they reduce the amount of fat in the foods that they serve? How can they reduce the amount of uh, sugar and sweetness? And so uh, that's those are the things that have made fast food successful. So, so the real question is, how, how can they reduce that and make healthier food and, and and still at the same time uh, continue to make the sales that they do. Um, and there's another thing. I, I, far be it for me to want to defend fast food, but I, I want to mention another couple studies that have been released recently. Uh, one is they compared uh, fast food menu items, the largest sales to the largest sales of casual restaurants, 
like Applebee's, for instance, and mm-hmm. um, and others. And they found that the casual restaurants were the ones that actually had two to three hundred more calories in their main meals than than did fast food operations. So that's the first thing. The second thing is they compared it with large numbers of local diners and Greek restaurants and Italian restaurants, and they found that fast food restaurants act- meals actually had three to four hundred calories less. So dining out is a problem regardless of whether you're going to fast food, casual restaurants, or whether you're going to the local diner. So those are issues that I think we need to be concerned about. And and the answer is we need to be doing more food preparation at home. That way we know what we're putting into our food and uh, we can cook it uh, in ways that, that are more healthful than the ways that many of the restaurants that are serving us food today do. When you look ahead 20, 30 years and you think about where fast food and the industry is headed, what do you think we're going to see? What's going to change? Much greater diversity. I mean, there's no reason on why you can't have some of the same principles and serve uh, organic, local, fresh food. Uh, yes, the prices would be a little higher, uh, but uh, I think people would love the, to see the diversity that's out there. Uh, so I, I look at greater diversity of fast food. It's not going to go away. Uh, by by far, it is the most significant uh, culinary trend of the last 50 years and is certainly going to continue well into the um, uh, the next several decades. So I don't look at fast food going away. I do look at, uh, at new uh, groups that are going to be opening up. There's no reason you now have a vegetarian um, uh, fast food chain. You have a vegan fast food chain. And so there are lots of new ideas on fast food that are opening up. And I think to the extent that they're uh, a success, I think that they're going to bode well for a a huge diversity of fast food that uh, we we don't see right now. Andy Smith is the author of the book, Fast Food, The Good, the Bad, and the Hungry. He's a professor at the New School, and we'll have more about that crop of up-and-coming fast food restaurants on our Facebook page, along with the dishes that, you never know, could become your new favorites. That's at facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. And now, a dip into history for the story of a chef who changed the American diet in an entirely different way. His name was Hector, and he landed at Ellis Island in 1914. Came on a French boat called La Lorraine. He was only 16, but actually he had already cooked at a hotel back home, so he was kind of an old pro. And some of his first gigs in the U.S. were pretty spiffy. The Plaza and the Ritz in New York. Just a year after he got off the boat at Ellis Island, he worked a reception for President Woodrow Wilson and his second wife, Edith Bowling Galt, who had just gotten married. But Hector had an entrepreneurial bug. He worked for a little while at a hotel in Cleveland where his exotic dinners became famous. And then once he got married, he and his wife Helen decided to open a restaurant, the Giardino d'Italia, the Garden of Italy. The restaurant immediately became a hit in Cleveland. There were incredibly long lines, and most fancy restaurants at that time were French, so people knew very little about Italian food. Hector would sometimes empty out old-school glass milk containers and pour his sauces into them so people could take them home. If it had been up to Hector and Helen, 
They might have been content with this wildly successful restaurant and patrons who loved them, but it was not enough for a couple who visited the restaurant named Eva and Maurice Weiner. They owned a chain of grocery stores, and they loved Giordino d'Italia, and they thought the food was so good that they could sell it as kind of a pre-made instant meal at their grocery stores. Business took off. By the late 1920s, the food that Hector made was so popular that they had to move production out of the restaurant and into a factory. But pretty early on, the couple realized they couldn't sell the products under their own name. Americans stumbled over it, they looked at it, they had no idea how to pronounce it. So the couple decided they were going to throw the real spelling out the window, and they would just spell it phonetically, which worked out pretty well. Hello, may I come in? I am Chef Boyardi. Perhaps you have seen my picture on Chef Boyardi products at two grocers. Chef Boyardi became so popular, they eventually produced 250,000 cans a day. They had to get farmers to grow more tomatoes because there just weren't enough. They became the biggest importer of Parmesan cheese in the U.S. And the real Hector Boyardi, which for the record is spelled B-O-I-A-R-D-I, was forever identified with the brand, even decades after he had sold it to a much bigger company. And yes, he admitted, he was proud of his family name, but he said sometimes sacrifices were necessary for progress. So ask your grocer for Chef Boyardi spaghetti dinner with meat or mushroom sauce, won't you? And look for other Chef Boyardi products. They're also delicious, they're also nourishing, and they help keep the cost of your meals down. Chef Boyardi's products are at best grocery. C'è la luna mezzo mare, mamma mia, mare da te. You can find today's show or any of our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Innovation Hub is supported by Destination Medical Center. With Mayo Clinic at its heart, DMC is a strategic economic initiative committed to making Rochester, Minnesota the world center for life science and health. Learn more at dmc.mn. Most people will tell you they don't have a billion anything. They don't have a billion dollars. They don't have a billion fans. There aren't a billion people who know who they are. But there's one thing that everybody has billions of, nucleotides, those tiny little building blocks of DNA. And billions of them are sitting around in your body right now. They make up your genome, and they know all sorts of valuable things about you that you don't know about you. So you can think of the human genome as a huge cookbook that's bigger than the Encyclopedia Britannica. Carl Zimmer is a science writer who undertook the massive project of getting his own genome sequenced. He says that more and more, as we can decipher these internal codes, we're going to find out that we're inclined towards a sudden heart attack or maybe that we're not inclined towards depression. So the question of what you're going to do with all this info is tricky. Three years ago, the actress Angelina Jolie had a double mastectomy after she found out that one particular gene increased her risk of getting breast cancer. But then that's just one gene. You know, if you get your whole genome sequenced, you know, you can find things out about potentially about 20,000 different genes and then all the rest of your genome because, you know, your genes actually only make up about 1% of your genome. 
Carl Zimmer skipped the couple hundred dollar test kits that you can easily find online now. Those will analyze a bunch of your proclivities and they'll look at your genetic history. Instead, he asked some of the country's best scientists to look at huge amounts of info about him. Eventually, one day, literally a, an external hard drive showed up in the mail at my door. Um, they had to physically send it to me because it was so much data. Zimmer published his findings for the health and medicine website STAT. And he says he knew that fear could have plagued him during this whole project. But he tried not to let it. I tried to think about this not simply as um, a way to find out what I might be sick with. Um, I mean, that's certainly part of it. But, you know, the human genome is just an amazing thing. Um, just this product of billions of years of, of evolution. And, yeah, it might make us sick in certain ways, but, you know, it also, like, allowed us to be here. Mm -hmm. you know? Each of us carries this remarkable recipe for being us, and I wanted to get to know my own recipe a little better. So when you had uh, your genome sequenced, uh, you found out that you did have proclivities you didn't know about and unusual mutations you didn't know about. What were, what were some of those? So, for example, I have a mutation um, that's uh, relatively uncommon, which is a very strong factor for weight. Huh. So I have, I have two copies of this variant, which means, on average, people with that variant are about seven pounds heavier than other people. Whoa. So, you know, maybe that tells me a little bit about my weight. Um, what's really interesting, though, is that I can know how that influences my weight, because actually scientists have been working out the circuitry that this mutation affects. It turns out that there's a, a basically there's a switch, a genetic switch in our fat cells that switches these fat cells from either burning up energy as essentially as heat or storing away as, in, as fat. And in most people, it can sort of flick back and forth in, in a useful way. Um, for me, my switch is stuck. So it just keeps sort of pointing these fat cells towards storing fat. Um, now, I'm not obese. I mean, I could certainly stand to lose a few pounds. But what's really interesting to me is, is learning about how, how my genome really does affect me on a sort of step-by-step -step basis. And are there uh, variants or sort of signposts in your genome that either put you at greater risk for serious diseases or protect you from ser serious diseases that you discovered in, in unpacking what you personally you know, sort of what your DNA looks like. So it's really interesting that, you know, in addition to mutations that might be bad for us, I mean, putting on extra weight is not a good thing. And, and there are other mutations that I found that give me a slightly greater risk of, say, you know, Alzheimer's, for example, just a slight risk, mm -hmm. not, not one of these big, strong mutations. There are other variants that are actually protective. Uh, and protective variants, it's kind of a new thing for geneticists. They're really just starting to put together a list of these mutations that seem to actually dramatically lower your risk of getting certain diseases. And I turned out to have one of these, which was pretty cool. And, and what are you protected against? So I'm protected against certain kinds of autoimmune diseases where your immune system basically goes after yourself. Okay. Uh, and one of these is Crohn's disease, where your immune system creates a lot of inflammation in your gut. And this can be a really pretty devastating, overwhelming experience, you know, just endless discomfort, pain, sometimes requires surgery to remove intestines. 
I have a variant that makes me much less likely to get Crohn's disease. But what's what's important in terms of discovering these protective variants is that you know scientists can ask themselves, well, can we harness this? Can we take this knowledge and use it to help people with diseases? So you know, in my case, uh, it turns out that actually, yes, scientists have looked at the biology and they said, okay, well, can we kind of mimic that to help people sort of tune down their, their inflammation? And there are, there are actually drugs that are coming on the market right now that target this particular molecule based on the knowledge that comes from discovering people like me. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Carl Zimmer, a science writer and the author of a series for Stat News where he explored his own genome. I wonder what you think about the reliability of that data and the stuff we've been talking about. You know that you have um, some protection from getting Crohn's disease, that you maybe are a little more inclined to be slightly more overweight than, than other people. Because I remember a few years ago, 2013, there was a very widely talked about experiment that a writer did where she sent out her genetic material to three different services that will interpret it for you, got back her reports, and there were some wildly different interpretations of what her DNA said. Well, I mean, if you have three you know, companies that say, hey, let us tell you about yourself, and they differ on that, is this art or is this science? I like to think of it kind of like astronomy in the 1700s. <laughs> okay, okay. So astronomy in the 1700s was a science. Uh-huh. People were discovering things like, you know, comets and planets and so on. But the tools that they had to find those things were pretty crude. Hmm. Um, so they couldn't see other galaxies. They couldn't see dark matter. They, they just couldn't do anything that we can do today uh, at the level of precision we've got. Um, but you have to start somewhere. Right. And I think genomics is at that point now where scientists can sequence human genomes in a sort of an affordable way. You know, now we're down to maybe $1,000, and it'll probably be less pretty soon. And so now we're starting to get, you know, databases of thousands and thousands of human genomes. So this, this is the first time in history that this has been possible. You know, the fact that I can get my genome in the mail is amazing. And it's okay for me if there's, you know, say a few percent of it is wrong. I can live with that because, you know, that still means that there's 95% roughly that's that's right. Still, it's easy to fool yourself into thinking that this is, you know, perfection. Right. Uh, yeah. and, I, and I actually really got reminded of that when I would go to different scientists. I, I went to several different labs, you know, some of the you know, the best genome interpreting scientists in the country. It sounds like you're going to palm readers, the best genome interpretation <laughs> scientists in the country. Well, you know, what, what they have to do is they have to take this huge amount of data and they have to write programs to analyze it. Uh, and it was really kind of striking when, you know, someone would say, well, you have 3.5 million variants that are not found in, in a sort of standard genome that people compare things to called the human reference genome. So 3.5 million of those variants, one person tells me I have. And then someone else says, well, I see 3.9 million. And you think, wow, that's 400,000 differences. (laughs) That's a pretty big difference. It's a big difference if one of those 
is a mutation that is going to right. you know give you lung cancer tomorrow. That's right. Yeah, that's a big deal. But we're talking about over three billion pairs of bases yeah. in in the human genome. Each one is kind of like a letter. So. Um, you know, if you had a, a set of encyclopedias that filled up a whole wall, and if you, you know, pull down a page, uh, a volume, and you opened up to a page, and you might find one typo here or there, you'd be like, okay, you know, maybe they need a, a copy editor to, mm-hmm. to go over this again. But, you know, for the most part, it's quite accurate. You've written that you can actually see history in our genomes, that you can see even you know, when your family tree moved out of Africa uh, and into Europe. Yeah, it's astonishing how much history you can actually uh, pull out of your genome, just one person's genome. So some scientists actually drew me a graph, and they said, okay, here's the relative size of the population of your ancestors, and by extension, uh, all my relatives, you you and everybody else. (laughs) going back uh, over a million years. And so, you know, it was a fairly large population back then. And then actually it shrank kind of dramatically uh, by around 600,000 years ago. And that's actually when the ancestors of our species, Homo sapiens, split from the ancestors of Neanderthals. So in a way, like that branching process actually made our population small for a while because we basically lost all these other people to, they went off and became, evolved into Neanderthals. And you can see that event actually inscribed in your DNA. And then if you go to more recent times, actually, you know, roughly around 50,000 years, there's, a, there's another big population crash. And that corresponds to when the ancestors of non-Africans, that would include me, uh, because I'm of European descent, when they left Africa. Because it was a very small group of Africans who expanded out of Africa and then gave rise to everybody else. Right. And you can see that, what's called a bottleneck. You can see that bottleneck inscribed in anybody's genome, including mine. And that's because there was just such a small group of people that it's so clear that they started, like, interbreeding rather than being in a large population? Yeah. So when they came out, if, if we're talking, who knows, maybe a few dozen or a few hundred people, when they expanded out of Africa, they had very little genetic diversity compared to the Africans right, who right. were staying in Africa. You know, So our species evolved in Africa 200,000 years ago and then started you know, diverging off into different groups. And so if you look in Africa, the genetic diversity of people in Africa is huge. You know, there's way more genetic diversity in Africa than in the rest of the world because Africans have just been there longer and have, you know, grown to bigger populations. Whereas we went through, we, I should say, meaning, you know, me and other non-Africans, we are descendants of this tiny bottleneck that were just this tiny little group of people with very little genetic diversity came out of Africa and then, you know, gave rise to this population. So there's more genetic diversity now because there are billions of non-Africans on Earth, but it still really hasn't caught up. We haven't generated that much genetic diversity because it's only been, say, about 50,000 years, which, believe it or not, is not very long in evolutionary time. When you sort of look ahead and you think about what scientists are going to be able to learn from genomes and what that's going to mean, not just like, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I'm going to be lactose intolerant and there's nothing I can do about it. Where is this headed, do you think? I think this is ultimately headed, say, in 20 or 30 years to 
genomes being um, as common in medical care as taking your blood pressure. You know, I think that, you know, when these days, like when a child is born um, in, you know, different states have different rules, but they have to be screened for disorders. You know, you take a little blood, uh, you know, from a heel prick and you look for certain disorders. That blood might as well just be used to sequence the kid's whole genome. Mm -hmm. And then that will be just in, in the kid's medical file for life. And it will be a way to rapidly look for uh, various disorders that you have to intervene very early in life. And, and those things will be dealt with in a much better way. And then it will be a way to uh, potentially make sort of long-term plans about, about people's health. Mm -hmm. I think it's inescapable that, that it will become a part of regular medical care. I don't I don't think it's quite ready now, although there are, you know, definitely there are companies that are trying to do business, trying to get people yeah. to get their genome sequenced. Um, and I think that people should be aware that it's, it's still very early days. Uh, it's fascinating, but um, it's not going to give people a, a total insight into, into their lives. So, you know, just, just you know, caveat emptor. Right. Carl Zimmer explored his own genome in a big series for Stat News. He's a science writer. Carl, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. A few sciencey musicians have realized that you can actually translate DNA sequences into music. This was created by Stuart Mitchell. He used someone's genetic code, which can repeat and form a rhythm. You can find a link to Stuart's work and more about turning DNA into melodies at our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had help this week from Matt Toda. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Discover. Care. Believe. PRI. Public Radio International.